Two True Freaks production. White Base Chronicles. A Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin Manga Summary and Commentary. Featuring your host, Aaron Henley. Hello there again, my friends, and welcome to White Base Chronicles, one of Taka's obsession with giant robots finally breaking into the stream of social consciousness, or some random guy with a microphone, a bunch of manga books, and a bit too much free time on his hands. I'll let you be the judge. Hi everyone, this is your host, Aaron Henley. How are you doing, my friends? I hope things have been going well for you. I <laughs> I know they're going well for me. In fact, I've been staring at the script for about a month now, and I'm finally glad to get it out to you in some kind of audio format. Whether or not it's of any quality, well, that's what iTunes reviews are for. Uh, the, those are still a thing, right? I mean, th those still exist? I don't know, I've been out of the game a while. First off, a little bit of housekeeping. <laughs> First, I forgot to mention a huge thank you to everyone who assisted me with the opening bit for episode 1. Oh, everyone went above and beyond the call of duty, and I couldn't be happier with the results. Everyone, thank you so much. It truly meant a lot to me. My expectations were just maybe one person, but everyone who stepped up, thank you so much. If I ever meet you in person, I owe you a beer, if you're of legal drinking age, which I think all of you are. <laughs> Second, I did forget to also mention this, and I'm going to be borrowing a line from the excellent Sailor Moon podcast, Sailor Business, also available on iTunes, that I am not the best Gundam fan. I'm just someone who bought a microphone and wanted to talk about it. So, if I miss plot points, misstate an interview from a creator, or completely dump on your favorite character, feel free to let me know through an email at whitebasechronicles at gmail.com or on Twitter at ahenley2011. Right now, there isn't any feedback because of the usual podcast time, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, between recording date and airing date, but I'm looking forward to all of you future people graciously granting me roughly an hour of your time to hear me talk about teenagers, war, and giant robots. This little passion project of mine is starting to take shape, but if there's anything you want to know about, let me know. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get this baby started. Andy? Last time! on White Base Chronicle. Zaku 2's infiltrate Site 7. Amuro can't keep a room clean. Frabo needs some groceries. We meet the RX-7901 Gundam. Will this Gundam be the replacement for the model we've known and loved for 40 years? Let me shake my magic eight ball a bit. Don't count on it. Huh. Well, uh, <laughs> that seems ominous. Let's see where we go from here. In Chapter 2. Sergeant Bullseye Ash and his squad of Zakus are staring down the wrong side of a Gundam and are very glad that Zeon likes dark olive green for their pants because they are definitely leaning more towards the brown side of the color spectrum right now. The Gundam lowers a massive cannon over its left shoulder and fires at the Zakus. I'm going to quote that one guy from Hot Shots Part 2 who gets splattered against the wall. Hey, you remember that guy? Well, his quote is quite accurate because that shoulder cannon is one heck of a gun, and I think I just heard a predator roar in envy. Oh, come on. Don't tell me the shoulder cannon isn't one of the greatest weapons of all time. Even War Machine doesn't feel right without it. The downside is the Gundam's pilot 
either completely misses or the shot isn't strong enough to penetrate the armor. It's kind of unclear in the art, but Sergeant Ash isn't impressed. Charging the Gundam while proclaiming that the pilot ain't hot bull droppings, the Gundam raises its rifle and fires. Sergeant Ash has about three seconds to realize, Oh. Oh, I royally screwed up. As the beam decapitates his mecha, DECAPITATION! And then the suit explodes in a spray of shrapnel and wreckage. As the other two Zakus try to avenge their comrade, the officers of the training complex are trying to figure out just what all the explosions and gunfire is about. Much to their shock, the gunman's pilot, Lieutenant Wirtz, no, no, not the German guy from Inglorious Bastards, you know, the one from the opening scene, reports that it's not a training drill, they're actually under attack. But, um, you know, that's my headcanon now. It is that guy from Inglorious Bastards, because that actor's just too cool. We get to some Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andy Leyland, all rights reserved, as the next few pages are just the Gundam and Zaku's tearing into each other. The Gundam batters with its shield and its rifle, the Zaku's with their heat hawks, which, <laughs> let me just describe these real quick. They're to scale for, you know, 50-foot-tall robots' tomahawks that the edges superheat to cut through battle steel. If that sentence didn't just make you smile then I'm afraid this podcast might just not be for you. The Gundam's shoulder cannon is destroyed, and I tear up a little, and the two Zakus continue to grapple with it. The Zero-One manages to raise its beam rifle up just enough to hit a Zaku point-blank right below its waist. The Zaku is destroyed, but there's one key thing Lieutenant Words forgot about Zakus. These bad boys are powered by a nuclear reactor, and <laughs> guess where they're located? The exact spot he just hit. The reactor goes critical, and everyone who's ever played a Fallout game and fires a fat boy while standing too close can guess what happens. The Zaku disappears in a flash of nuclear fire, destroys both the other Zaku and the Gundam, while tearing open a massive hole in the colony wall. <laughs> I'm sure that's not going to be a problem at all. Oh, wait, uh, where were we again? Yeah. Nah, nah, I'm sure everyone's going to be fine. I mean, this was a kid's cartoon, it can't be that bad, right? We cut back to Amuro and Frabo at the dock, where I'm assuming White Base is as it unloads supplies to the colonists. And you know that actually does help with the civilian supply ship cover that I just now realized. So good on you, Yashuhiko-san, that, that's good forethought, I'm, I'm proud of you. Well, everyone stops as they begin to feel a slight breeze. Wait a second, they're on an environmentally sealed and controlled environment. There shouldn't be a breeze. Amuro has a bad feeling. And that's an important thing, and also a bit of contention amongst Gundam fans, but we'll get into that later, thank God. And he quickly tells Frau to get back into the car. Driving down the highway, Frau asks what's going on, but the answer comes into view pretty quickly. She can see stars where she shouldn't, and there's a lot of them. So either Side 7 is planning a massive spur-of-the-moment observation deck, or things are about to go downhill for this colony very quickly. Back at the training center, the surviving Federation officers are trying to get into contact with Lieutenant Wirtz. Well, the little pieces of goo that are left of him and the wreckage of the Gundam and Zakus are quickly blown out into space. Realizing they've lost Unit 1, they desperately try to get Unit 2. Hmm, that number sounds familiar. To White Base. But apparently Sergeant Ash's lover, Jean and Denim, arrive, and Jean goes berserk. 
Seriously, I mean, this is this is crazy. Despite Denim's strict orders, Gene starts firing at everything in sight. So, yeah, I think he and Ash had a thing. He reaches the administration complex, smashes through it with his Zaku's arm, and we find out the Zaku too has wrist cannons, and I smile. But sadly, those cannons tear into the Federation officers like a velociraptor into a cow. The art is pretty graphic, with large holes being torn into these men, and all I can say is, well... At least it was quick. Below the burning administration center in what I'm calling a mobile suit garage, technicians load Unit 2 onto a tractor-trailer crawler that can run down a ramp that leads straight to the docking bay. And brace yourselves, folks, we're going to be cutting back and forth between different scenes real fast here. Simultaneously at White Base, Captain Paolo orders every available man to assist in the defense of Site 7, while Bright is to get as many of the civilians aboard as they can before all the oxygen is lost. This decision of Captain Paolo's will seriously come back to bite everyone on white base hard. <laughs> I mean, I can understand sending out the guy who mops the floors, but pretty much every single bridge and senior officer? It seems like they should be at their posts, but, uh, you know, what do I know? Well, then look again at Star Trek. Every single senior officer is usually sent to life-or-death situations in unknown planets while the hundreds of lower-ranking officers are safe in their bunks, you know, those officers who probably have specializations geared just for that event, but, uh, what do, you know, what do I know? And in this case, we need to have a plot point for later events. As we look upon just how powerful the forces of air pressure can be with signs, trees, debris, and, while not shown, I'm pretty sure people are being forced through the gaping wound in the colony. Unit 2 begins to go down the service ramp. And what really scores this home is from here on out... Every time we see a tree or a sign, part of it is bent in the wind's direction, and that's just good visual storytelling. It tells us that things are going on, even though it's not stated. And as we get further along this journey, I think we can come to a conclusion that this manga is a masterwork of the show-don't-tell principle. The art now is a little unclear to me, but it looks like the brakes fail and the crawler skids off its tracks into a previously damaged part of this railway system. The falling debris from this railway almost smashes Almero's car and he screeches to a stop. Bravo jumps out and rushes uphill to her house. Almero and Haro follow her as fast as they can. And quick, quick side point here. Just stop. Why would you make hills in an artificial environment? Was there really someone on the design team who said, Hey, we need a hill for teenagers to lie on and be introspective. Wait, Japanese anime slash manga. Never mind, I just answered my own question. We now turn from the chaos inside 7 to the peace and tranquility found on the bridge of a Xeon Musai-class space cruiser. Receiving a report from Private Kato Slender, the lookout from the last episode, the ship's commander coolly and calmly determines his next course of action. Now, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, I give you the man who is considered one of the sexiest anime characters of all time. How do I know? Guess whose face and half-naked body was stitched onto the first Japanese body pillow? Okay, I don't know that for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was him, or Dark Magician Girl, or Rei Ayanami, which depends on how popular Neon Genesis still is. But what makes this blonde-haired man so darn sexy? His uniform is crimson and gold. He wears a sword. He looks every inch a regal prince. 
but he also has an air of mystery, for underneath his stylish white samurai helmet is a full white half-face mask completely obscuring his eyes. So he has a whole Phantom of the Opera vibe going on. Why does he wear this mask? We'll find out later. Well, allow me to introduce to you the man, the myth, the legend, Char Aznable, the Red Comet. And, and seriously, I'm not kidding about this. In Japan, Char is as popular as Wolverine is in the U.S., though not nearly as oversaturated. So Char gets the point in that. I mean, seriously, Wolverine actually died, and they still had two other characters, one a future version of him and one a clone daughter, just so Marvel stock wouldn't plummet a half percent each day. Anyhow, back to Char. He orders Slender back to base with his Exo and Sundren, musing how it's not like Denim to lose control of his men like that. Char orders his men to battle stations, and we now see just how chilling a commander he is as he delivers this line. The Federation has violated the treaty, and we will make them pay dearly for it. Also, um, here's another difference between the anime and the manga. The anime has the char lenses of Char's mask white like the rest of his headgear. From the manga, which I do highly recommend to follow along and is available for free legally at the website I mentioned uh, in the intro, the lenses are the same red as his uniform. So, I guess when he went to the store and made his order, he always wanted to cosplay a Cyclops. Huh. A lot of X-Men references in this episode. I just noticed that. But let's get back to that last line. Chara's hands were tied by the Antarctic Treaty, with Site 7 being a neutral territory. Now, with the Federation's military presence confirmed, he's about to do what he does best, and it isn't very nice. Okay, I, I admit that may have been a stretch, but, you know, I'm proud of it. We cut back to the colony while Federation officers struggle to get the crashed Unit 2 back up and moving. Dr. Tam Ray is telling the milling and confused civilians to look for another route to evacuate, as this one is for military use and the mobile suit only. Okay, uh, two points here. Two points. First, I'm pretty sure the military would make an exception, considering the thing you need to live is currently being depleted at an exponential rate, and thousands of people are going to die. Second, you built the Gundam, Dr. A. Why don't you just get in the darn thing and manually drive it to White Base? Running up to one of the officers trying to deal with the crowd, Amuro tells him he's trying to get home and isn't afraid to use a little nepotism by name-dropping his dad. Hearing said dad yell that the mobile suit takes precedence over the refugees, Amur runs up to him and drops one of the most infamous lines in the Gundam universe. Listen, dad, are mobile suits more important to you than human beings? The answer to that, Amuro, is yes. Yes, it is. It's even more important than you. Remember that he left you alone for how long on a space station, as well as doing some other stuff that we'll get into so he could build this thing? You really should get a refund on that number one dad coffee mug you bought him for his birthday. By the way, finally remembering that he has a son, Dr. Ray orders Amuro to get onto White Base. Before Amuro has a chance to even take a step, Blue Mad Dog Gene Zaku bursts through a wall and he sights the second unit. By this time, Federation security forces have gotten mobilized and various missile and Gatling gun half-tracks have arrived and begin firing at the Zaku. 
The barrage of firepower crumbles the ledge Gene is standing on. Again, why do you have ledges and hills on a space colony? And Izaku slides down the hill and brings the mobile suit up close to the defensive forces. I would consider this a bad thing. It's one thing to be shot at range while in a relatively mobile unit like a truck, and quite another when, in addition to being shot at, you now have to worry about the enemy stomping on you like an ant. But the Federation isn't the best at aiming, and a stray missile completely misses Jinzaku. Um, excuse me, how you miss a 50-foot-tall robot is anybody's guess. And the missile plows in the crowd of refugees near Amuro, sending the young boy flying, with the landing knocking him unconscious. Meanwhile, Jean recovers enough to return fire to the Federation forces, and he finishes destroying the rail track, which causes the crawler to completely topple over, and somewhere an engineer is crying because a paint job just got scratched. You know, I told him to go with the final gloss top coat, but he complained about cost overruns and like it would ever really need it. Well, who's laughing now, Anton, huh? Who's laughing now? Anyway, Amra regains consciousness and finds a grisly discovery. Every single man, woman, and child who is there has been killed, and it was only by the grace of plot convenience that he escaped. Amuro also gets his first up-close-and-personal glimpse of the Zaku and realizes that the real thing is a heck of a lot different than statistics and diagrams on a computer screen. Federation defense forces are being blown apart like toys under the withering fire of the Zaku's rifle, and Amuro suddenly finds himself in danger from three-foot-long rifle shells flying all over the landscape. So he quickly bolts, and, you know, I, I feel like we've forgotten someone. Someone round and mascot-esque. Also, the art shows that each bullet the Zaku is firing is 140 millimeters long. I did some rough internet research, and the M101A1 howitzer artillery cannon deployed in World War II fires 105 millimeter round and fires roughly two to three rounds a minute. The Zaku's gun is firing much larger shells at machine gun speeds, so you can see the destructive power of just one of these rifles, and this is just the standard armament. Trust me, we get to the better stuff later. As Amuro plays Frogger with falling brass cylinders that weigh as much as he does, Amuro trips and sees Frabo leaving her family and running to see if he's okay. This action saves her life as an explosion, it's unclear who fired it in the manga, but in the anime it was Gene, so I'll say it's Gene here, and he's certainly earning that mad dog call sign, blasts everyone behind her, and the shockwave sends her flying. Armora rushes over to check on his friend. As Frau regains her senses and turns her head, she sees what's become of her entire family. Frau Bo has now become a war orphan. I... Honestly, wanted to make a joke here, but there's just so much emotion that I realized I'm just not that heartless. Amuro, I'll make fun of. Frabo, right now? No. Amuro tries to help the shop girl recover her senses and get out of the danger zone, but she's too far gone. He realizes one of the few ways to help a hysterical person regain control of themselves, and I begin the official White Base Chronicles slap count. Slapping her twice, so we're up to two. He tells Fra to start running to the docking bay. It 
actually is a pretty sweet scene as he keeps telling her to run, and the most she can do is stagger limply forward, but each step seems to increase with speed, and that is just brilliant storytelling! With each step she takes, Amuro tears up a little, and this scene is way better here than the original anime, and I actually would take roughly the same amount of time to read or watch. So, yeah, awesome. Amuro now puts on his angry eyes of protagonist justice and looks over at the fallen mobile suit. Suddenly, an idea begins to form in his head. An awful, delicious, and juicy idea. But approaching mechanized footsteps distract him, and Amuro turns to face Jean Zaku and stare death in his face as the world burns around him. The last panel really hits hard because around Amuro we see falling bodies, articles of clothing, broken eyeglasses, and, most telling, a teddy bear smoking. I'll be honest, I have a lot of trouble understanding social cues, body language, and things of that nature. With the Ashuhiko-san's art, I know exactly what he's trying to tell. He's giving us more show. Don't tell that the manga medium allows for the audience to get the message an entire page of dialogue couldn't do. Trying to impart perfect communication without any misunderstanding. Hmm. You know, could could Yasuhiko-san be a... Nah, 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 nah. That's crazy, that's crazy. We're not, we're not going down that road. Nah. Well, let's take a small break here, plug some promos for other shows I listen to, and one I highly recommend. And when we return, the battle begins. We'll be right back. Hey friends, Aaron Henley here. Check out Mobile Suit Fandom, found at, uh, on iTunes at Mobile Suit Fandom. It's run by two blokes named Fuzzy and Chris, who are currently reviewing the entire Mobile Suit Gundam anime franchise from beginning in 1979 to end to be determined. The show, while not family-friendly, is a hoot to listen to. Uh, every episode has something that's quotable, and some lines I just cannot say on a family-friendly podcast. Needless to say, if you're old enough to listen to it, check it out. I highly recommend it. It's just a fun way to spend a few hours listening to them, not just critique the Gundam anime, but also offer some insight, some stories, and pretty much it's the Comedy Central of Gundam. That's Mobile Suit Fandom, found on iTunes. Well, on to Chapter 3. Jean Zaku looks down at the young boy whose gaze could pierce the heavens with its rage and immediately bursts into flames. No, no, that doesn't happen. He lowers his rifle to kill the helpless civilian. Oh, okay. Denim, I know Zion is responsible for a lot of war crimes. See Australia, for example. But come on, get some control over your man. If you're going to spend panels complaining that he's disobeying direct orders, you can use your Zaku to intervene and stop him. But since you aren't, I guess you just don't mind the helpless slaughter of civilians. Levi Denim, you have lost my respect and your punny first name. You are now just Master Sergeant Denim. That's the worst I can do to a fictional character. Take away the fake name I gave him. Well, in the split second before Gene pulls his trigger, a missile flies in off-panel, or in comic terms, literally out of nowhere, and strikes the Zaku, distracting him. 
This gives Amaro a chance to run to the mobile suit's crawler, and he puts all that diagram reading he's been hacking into, um, well, into action. <laughs> I can't think of a better way to say that sentence. And there's a nice shot of him standing by the mobile suit's foot, and we can actually get the scale of this thing. Amuro is about 5'5 uh, five, five or so, and, and he only reaches the ball of the mobile suit's foot. And yes, there is a reason why I keep saying mobile suit and not, you know, <laughs> you know. Just trust me, there is a reason. Finding a computer access panel in the middle of the toe, he enters a passcode. Oh, okay, Dr. Ray, what the heck? You enter the passwords to the most powerful weapon the Earth Federation has where it can be read? Granted, this is supposedly a secure military database, but if a 15-year-old kid can get into it, it doesn't seem that secure, does it? Have you even heard of data encryption? Granted, the kid's obviously a technical genius, but come on, man! I doubt any of the Manhattan Project scientists took their work home, and there was over 30 of them! You're one guy! You should know better! Well, the passcode opens up the hatch to the mobile suit, and we find out that the cockpits for mobile suits are in the chests and not the heads of these humanoid war machines. And, you know, honestly, I think that's a brilliant idea, because that's where the armor would be the thickest, and most soldiers would aim at the head, because, you know, we're trained to shoot, soldiers are trained to shoot at the head because it works best on people, and, you know, head and then chest. Plus, a lot of these guys probably grew up playing Call of Duty 0059, and, you know, aim for the head. So, while Gene Zaku continues raining fire and death everywhere, Amuro falls into the cockpit with all the grace of a drunken frat boy, and for some weird reason, honestly, acts surprised that he ends up in the control chair. I mean, it really makes no sense, since he's obviously trying to get into the thing. Unless there's a Japanese sound effect, because there's a lot of large kanji, and um, I'm missing what it means, and it implies that the explosions are getting closer, but I can't read Japanese kanji, so I might just be missing context clues. Okay, well, <laughs> I did a little bit more research, and I was going off the digital version when I wrote the notes, and I double-checked my paper text, and it does have the sound effect of thunk, thunk, written next to this really large kanji, and now I'm wondering why that didn't make the cut to the digital copy. Weird. Huh. Speaking of another odd error, Gene finishes off the remaining Federation forces and returns his attention to the inactive mobile suit. He then says, and I'm quoting directly, Master Sarge, I take out the second one! I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm including this screen cap on my companion blog, so you don't have to take my word for it. I mean, how did this get by editorial? I've looked at both the print and digital versions, and it's the same. Seriously, how did this get by them? Okay, let, let's, let's table that and get back to, to the story. Amuro manages to close the cockpit hatch, but realizes a new problem. It's pretty dark inside an enclosed metal cockpit, almost like, you know, the same v amount of brightness you'd get if you were in a coffin. But, you know, <laughs> why would we call the inside of a Gundam a coffin? I mean, you know, I don't know why. So he starts flipping random switches to turn on the main view screen. He manages to hit the right one, and the first thing he sees is a 50-foot-tall Zaku staring straight at him. He struggles to remember what he's read from his dad's diagrams and manages to switch on the mobile suit's power. As energy begins coursing through the machine, Armor begins operating the controls to raise the suit. 
the suit twitches a little. The eyes light up with a golden glow. Jean pauses in his rampage, and slowly the head and upper torso raises. Amara manages to find the gun trigger, which actually I think the movie Last Starfighter homages, as the firing button for the Gundam is located on the side of a T-handle controller, just like the Gunstar. And any time I can squeeze a Last Starfighter reference into this show, I will! And the Gundam proceeds to fire a burst of rounds from the mobile suit's head Vulcan guns. That's right, there are machine guns in the head. The bullets do little damage to Jean Zaku, but it gives Amuro enough time to get the mobile suit upright and standing. Now, with two full pages of epic standing, steel cables snapping, epic music swelling, servo motors grinding and whirring, the mobile suit fully activates, and from here on out, I give you the Gundam! Oh, this is just beautiful. We're treated to a full page, brilliantly watercolored illustration of the Gundam, and I want this on my wall. I want this on my wall so bad, it's not even funny. If I could find a decent poster maker in my town to make this, I would. Gene again regains his senses, and seriously, Gene, how hard is it to just keep pressing the trigger in Ozaku? If you're so gung-ho to destroy the thing, that button should be permanently pressed down until your ammo runs dry. I don't think you want to revenge your dead lover all that much, Gene. I'm starting to doubt your commitment to mass murder. Despite Denim's warning that the Gundam's armor was designed specifically to repel Zaku fire, um, wait, hold on. So if it wasn't obvious that someone tipped Zeon off as to the, what the Federation was up to at Site 7, it is now, because how else would he know that? How would he possibly know this? Gene goes to fire, and Armuro does when any sane 15-year-old boy in a giant robot war machine that has just seen a lot of people brutally murdered would do. He screams at Gene to stay away! Stay away! And then holds down the Gundam's fire button until the Vulcan cannons run out of ammo, and even further until the spent cannons begin to damage themselves from running dry and continue to operate afterwards. The return fire is seen by the surviving engineering team and Dr. Ray. Hey, you know, I forgot about those guys. If you didn't, you're better than me and deserve a cookie. Harley, make a note that I owe these listeners a cookie. Dr. Ray realizes that the Gundam's return fire won't do much except dent the Zaku's armor and orders a comm line established with the mobile suit immediately. Meanwhile, Jane realizes that the Gundam has now run out of ammo and decides it's his turn in the turn-based combat to return fire. He claims that the Gundam must be peeing his pants, and I ask you to take note of this. We'll come back to it in just a few minutes. Suddenly, out of nowhere, the Gundam's right hand begins shining bright green. It yells out, And completely smashes the Zaku's rifle into bits, along with a good chunk of its arm. Wait, what's that, Harley? That... That doesn't happen? Meow! But but it's obviously a Shining Finger reference! Meow! Okay, okay, I'll, I'll tell them what really happens. I still think this was better, though. Meow! Alright, I'll be faithful to the source material. Meow!
but Amuro acts desperately and shoves the Gundam's right hand against the Zaku's rifle barrel. So, to pick, so picture this. To keep himself alive, we just see the Gundam do a talk to the hand against a gun, and I'm laughing my head off. Continuing to press forward and scraping past the gun, Amuro then has the Gundam do something that I will never get tired of seeing. The Gundam headbutts the Zaku, and it's super effective. Huh. Who knew Zakus were weak against fighting-type Pokédoms? The Zaku topples onto its back, but Amuro isn't done yet. Oh, no. The Gundam reaches down, grabs the tubing around the Zaku's headplate, lifts the Zaku back up, and then proceeds to shake it back and forth like a terrier with a chew toy. It looks amazing on the outside, but inside, Gene is being thrust back and forth in his cockpits violently. And, you know, I like to think three things are going through his mind right now. First, what the hell is happening? Second, thank God I have a seatbelt. Third, why didn't anyone put an airbag in this thing? Oh, don't worry, Gene. You know, that's a design flaw that will be fixed in future Gundam series, but sorry, you don't get one. In fact, the torsion of this action is so great, the steel tubing finally snaps, and the Zaku again tumbles to the ground, only this time it leaves a good chunk of its head in the Gundam's hands. Denim is in shock at the sheer power the Gundam is exhibiting, while Gene has currently peed himself. And we have a few panels of a Zaku fleeing in absolute terror. The best way I can describe this is it's literally clawing away frantically at the ground and struggling to rise and run. So it's a bit more humanoid, less robot, but, you know, we we get what, what we're going for here. So remember that line Gene said a few minutes ago about, I bet that mobile suit is peeing itself? All I have to say is this. Karma listens, and she loves irony. The Gundam begins to give chase when Obi-Wan Kenobi, <laughs> oh wait, uh, I mean Dr. Ray, tells Amuro to use his beam saber to finish it off. I guess that comline got established just long enough for a single sentence. <laughs> I mean, the Star Wars reference of use the force is just too close to this, and trust me, those references aren't going away anytime soon. <coughs> Char! <coughs> Char! So, what looked like just a giant white piston on the Gundam's back turns out to be a lightsaber. <laughs> uh, uh, sorry, I mean, beam saber. Beam saber. And Amuro diagonally bisects Jean Zaku, and probably Jean as well, from shoulder to crotch. The pieces of the destroyed Zaku fizzle and pop, and Amuro learns a lesson Lieutenant Wirtz learned only Amro is far enough away to be able to put it into practice, and Amro is also protected by plot armor. The reactor goes up, and a second massive explosion rips out of the colony into space. The destroyed landscape collapses and is blown into the void, with the Gundam barely escaping by grabbing onto one of the main supports of the colony. But not everyone is so lucky. Dr. Rainier's team are pushed into space. Fortunately, they were wearing spacesuits, or normal suits as the manga calls them. I mean, I guess when you have giant robots called mobile suits, spacesuit just doesn't sound as cool anymore, so you have to call it a normal suit to compensate? I mean, I don't know. It never really made sense to me anyway. Unfortunately for Dr. Ray, we see part of his helmet's faceplate is cracked, and, you know, I'm sure that's not going to have any lasting repercussions. 
Denim decides to avenge Jean, <laughs> you know, to be honest, we better get used to Xeon forces wanting to avenge dead comrades at the Gundam's hands, because I think there will be a lot of that happening as we go through the story, and tries attacking with his heat hawk. And, you know, side note, I will never get tired of saying the words heat hawk together. It, I just love it. Heat hawk! Heat hawk! Heat hawk! Heat hawk! Heat hawk! And now I just ruined it. The Gundam grapples with the Zaku, causing it to drop the space axe, and Denim proceeds to just beat the Gundam like it was a slab of beef in a Philadelphia meatpacking plant. It's a one-sided fight, and now Armoro is being tossed around, and the Gundam takes some serious punishment. Denim tosses the Gundam a good distance and proceeds to charge to do a flying stomp onto the Gundam's cockpit and squishing the little human inside like an egg. Amuro manages to activate his beam saber, with the end going straight through Denim's cockpit, killing Denim, but leaving the machine intact enough that we don't get a third nuclear explosion. And all I can say for this is... This panel is where I came up with the term mecha porn. The shot of the Gundam stabbing the Zaku is iconic from the anime. It's was used in later episodes as just no oh no no I'm thinking when he killed Jean is what's used but that this shot of just stabbing the Zaku anyone who's seen Gundam knows this shot that's that's what I'm trying to that's the point I'm trying to get across but in addition to that we get to see from Amuro's point of view how worried he is that he's not sure if he missed the reactor but he's you know bracing himself he's waiting for the explosion and it only to you know breathe a sigh of relief as the zaku powers down and falls lifeless and it's just beautiful this is why the comic slash manga medium is an art form unto itself we end with char's musai cruiser moving into an attack position against the colony now, real quick, what a Musai looks like is basically it's long and thin, kind of like a jet ski body with two engine pods at the base, um, long, uh, thin rectangle on the backside with three gun turrets going up it, and on top, a Viking helmet for the bridge. I, I'm, I'm not kidding. It, it actually has a Viking helmet. <laughs> uh, between the... the Xeon loves curves, so between the round bridge and the two, like, radar antenna on the side, it's a Viking helmet. So again, say what you want about Xeon, but they have style. So as the Musai gets closer to the colony, we get yet another classic line of Mobile Suit Gundam. Nobody ever likes to admit to mistakes due to his own youth, but I guess this time I simply have no choice. And as Char finishes... The cruiser launches missiles at the helpless colony. Whew! This was some episode. We get to see the impact of war and how uncaring it truly is. We It doesn't matter who you are. Anyone can be a target in war. Whether you're a civilian, a soldier, a bullet doesn't care. And people at the end have to pick up from the wreckage. And, that, and we're going to be dealing with consequences for this, actually through the rest of the story, to be honest. We also have robot fights that have become iconic, and trust me, only get larger from here. Remember, we're just dealing with the Gundam 
against two standard-issue mobile suits. As we get further in the story, what happens in any video game as you progress through levels? The enemies get tougher and better equipped? Yeah. Right now, Amuro's just fighting... Let, let's put this into, like, Halo terms. Amuro right now is just fighting two grunts. We're not even at an elite yet. He's just fighting two standard guys, and he's barely hanging on. Just wait. It gets better. We also see how hubris can lead to suffering. And how a 15-year-old is currently experiencing trauma that is going to haunt him throughout the rest of the series. And I know the story so far has mainly been set up, but don't worry. Strap in, my friends. The ride only gets better from here. Take it away, Andy. Next time on White Base Chronicles. Frabo finds an old friend. We're introduced to the rest of the main supporting cast. A middle manager ends up over his head. We meet a nurse who's more than she seems. And the Red Comet shows us just what a mobile suit is capable of. All this and more next time on White Base Chronicles. Who will survive? <laughs>